Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We are so glad that you're here today. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, there's a couple of things I want to address before we get going today. One, our set looks a little different today because uh, there's a play that's in, in town. We don't... We, the stage stuff for us is just plain. If it looks anything different, it's not because of us. It's somebody else's uh, doing a play here. Ruby Mechanicals putting on a Thanksgiving show. Um, pretty cool. So anyways, uh, that's uh, one thing. And then the second thing is um, you came on a Seahawks 10 o'clock Sunday, and they start in five minutes. So I don't even know why you're here. I'm so glad that you are. I thought it would be me and Andrew and, like, the worship team, and that would be pretty much it because um, they flex the game and all kinds of good stuff. And, like, the only thing I can think of is that you made some promises to God last night in the last minute and a half of this Cougs game, and then therefore you're like, I got to kind of fill in, and that's why we're here. So that could be, I guess, it. And if you're not sports uh, into it at all, then neither of those references make any sense. We're just glad you're here in general. So uh, we are on part three. Uh, of a series we're calling On the Road. Uh, it's a series on what we, uh, the subtitle is a series on restless hearts. Um, and the idea being that we've all kind of <clears throat> done things in life. We've all left situations. We've all left relationships or, um, I don't know, family situations or um, jobs, uh, whatever, because we're chasing something. We're looking for something different. We're not satisfied with where we're at. We, wouldn't, we, wouldn't, we may not have said it in the moment, but we, we feel restless in that. That's why we got to move out of the Tri-Cities. That's why we got to go somewhere and do something different. That's why our answer uh, with, uh, you know, where are you going to go after high school or, or after college is anywhere but here. These are the answers that a lot of times you say, anywhere um, but here, and so this has been kind of a, a challenge to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we're actually looking for when we live in the midst of these restless hearts? If we, if we have this feeling, what is it that we're actually looking for? And one person in church history in, in particular thought that that was a very formidable and worthwhile question, uh, and his name was St. Augustine. He wrote many books, but the one he's most probably famous for is uh, a book he called uh, Confessions, just straight up confessions, and, and just as a side note and a confession of my own, it's very hard for me to pick up that book and not break into Usher's Confessions um, as I'm reading it, because uh, I'm a child of the, uh, the 90s there, uh, or early 2000s, and uh, I promise not to sing it for you, because uh, that would require a release of liability waiver, and we just didn't want to do that. So, um, But the idea behind Confessions is simply this. Perhaps he would write, he grew up in the fourth century and is writing about his kind of adventure of chasing, 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 chasing this restlessness, this endless desire for something different. The grass is always green on the other side, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so he's like, let me, let me write my story down for you about what I kind of ex have experienced in life, uh, and perhaps it will be, uh, my, perhaps my adventure will feel or sound uh, familiar to you. For the most part, it ages pretty well, even though the story of his life is 1,600 years old. The things that he write, writes about, and I would encourage you even outside of the series to, to pick up a, a copy of, of his confessions. There's a new one that just came out a couple years ago by a woman named Sarah Rudin, uh, which is exceptionally good. Um, and as you read it, you, you realize maybe not everything's the same. I mean, there's no social media, so that, like, that idea didn't work. But, um, but for the most part, it ages pretty well. And uh, there, there's also a piece of it, in, even in his own writings, where he says, hey, if there's any way that my trials and my errors can save you from some of your trials and errors, then, then I want to help this or provide this for you. And I know some of us respond with that with, uh, with, with like this idea that, oh, no, pain and suffering are the way the things that I use to shape who I am. I am a result of trial and error, like, so I want to do this. Good on you, but perhaps this can be a helpful tool in making sure that that's true for you. I would hate to allow op learning opportunities to kind of 
um, go to waste. And so he would say, I've gone through so many different things. I've, I've chased so many different spots. Let me tell you the life of a chaser. Let me tell you of, of a person who is consistently uh, restless. And so if that can be a tool and a resource. And so we said in this series, all right, we're going to kind of look at this, but we're going we're gonna to isolate down into specific questions um, and do this. But the overall theme of the entire series and the entire, um, his entire writings, I'll save you the time from reading the whole book if you don't want to read the whole book. But um, it comes, it's like in the very first page or two of his actual text where he says uh, something along these lines, in yourself you rouse us, giving us delight and glorifying you because you made us with yourself as our goal, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. Uh, The most famous quote from Augustine, and basically it's this idea of restless hearts and misguided loves. Restless hearts and misguided loves. Uh, we live with restless hearts, and we, we find ourselves, and he would say, we, I have found myself chasing all kinds of loves, all kinds of things that I thought would bring me satisfaction, joy, fulfillment in life, and those are good things, and I think you gave me the desire to kind of want these things, and they're good tools, but they're terrible things to build your life on. Uh, they're, they're, they're tremendous assets and, and uh, bring a, a new perspective of life, but it's a terrible foundation for my actual identity of who I am and whatever. So book by book, he goes through different misguided loves um, and, and basically saying, I love this when all along I should have loved you. And it's familiar territory for us because in some degree, shape, or fashion, we kind of can read through this and be like, we can identify the spots in our life where we've kind of done similar chasing, where we would say, "I love the idea of being married more than the person I, uh, more than I love the person that I was married to." Right? Uh, I I liked, I thought that I liked the military, but what I loved was the brotherhood, the camaraderie of it. I thought I liked Starbucks because of the coffee, but their coffee sucks, so it must not be the coffee. It's got to be the red cups or the feeling or the image of a Starbucks cup on my Instagram or something. So this feels very, very psychologically driven. What do I want when I really want that? What is it that I want when I really want that? That's what we're going for. We're saying in specific areas, we, we have this uh, inhibitive uh, ambition towards something that we want. What is it that we want when we really want those things? So last week we said what I want when I want to be free, when I want to have liberation, when I don't want to have any rules, when I don't want people to tell me what to do. And, and, and I, I'm not going to rehash the whole thing for you, but it's this idea of agency. I just want to have choice. I want to have the ability to choose it. I want to be, even if it hurts me, even if there's pain and destruction and consequences of it, I, at least, at least I chose it uh, for myself. And what does that say about us? This week, uh, here's the idea. What do I want when I want to be noticed? I titled this uh, talk Ambition um, because I think in the, in the levels of ambition, which is like this, like this desire to do something, to, to, to uh, conquer something, to win something, to be successful at something, uh, no, uh, in no bigger area, I think sometimes restlessness comes in than this idea of wanting to do more, wanting to be noticed. What do I want when I want to be noticed, what are we looking for in all of our ambitions? What do we hope to find at the end of our aspirations? For Augustine, the answer is a bit complicated. He would say this, we want, I want, I think human nature is to want to win and to be noticed. I want to win and I want to be noticed. Or to dominate and to get attention for it. To win the crown and to be seen doing it. It's not enough just to win. It's not enough just to dominate. It's not enough to just win the crown. I want to be noticed. I want to get attention, and I want to be seen doing it. 
there was an award ceremony, or if there was an award that was given, but without the ceremony, it means a little bit less than bring me in front of a group of my peers or people that I think are respective of, you know, I care about what they think, I care about their authority. And by you recognizing me publicly, that says something so much more than just giving me uh, something. We prize this ambition to win uh, at all costs and to be seen doing it. We put things on our Instagram pictures like hashtag grinding, hashtag no time for sleep, and we wear those as a badge of honor in this way. I have a friend named Danny who I met on a cruise ship uh, about um, probably 10 or so years ago. He's an aspiring singer-songwriter, and his favorite compliment, he would come over, he, he came to a Drinks for Drinks event a couple years ago, and, and uh, every time he's in the area, drives through town and, and stays with us. And I'm, I'm learning from my restless friend. He's like the most restless guy I've ever met. Um, and we would talk about kind of what he's writing, what he's doing, what he's hoping for. Like you just want to, you know, he, he knows I don't want to play cruise ships for the rest of my life. At some point that gets old and it's hard to build a family when you're, when you're gone, uh, you know, cruising the Caribbean. Um, and uh, so he would say, he would say this, um, my favorite compliment that I ever get is not that my music is good, because I, I, he's like, I get that, or whatever. He, his favorite compliment, compliment was this. What's somebody like you doing in a place like this? What's somebody like you? And it's not like the cruise ship's a bad thing, right? He's like, it's fine, it's good, it's this. But it's like, I have this aspiration, this ambition for something more. I love it when people see a talent like what I have and think, to themselves or audibly say it to me if, it's, if they're being like generous with the compliments, what's somebody like you doing in a place like this? Which is, by the way, the backbone of every reality performing arts show, The Voice, uh, American Idol, everything, right? When, when somebody comes up and they're like, what do you do? Like they, they, they sing and they're like, oh, we're blown away. What do you, I'm a waitress, I'm a this. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is so good. What's somebody like you doing in a place like this? And then secretly, come on, secretly, some, if not all of us, have got this, a little bit of this in us when it comes to our supervisors and evaluations and six months evaluations, and we want to be somebody who presents something and, and then get found out, and then they would say, what is something like, what's somebody like you doing a little place like Richland, Washington, huh? And you think to yourself, that's it, man, that's right, yeah, I don't deserve to be here, whatever, I don't know. I have this ambition to do something bigger, strong, I would, you know. Anyways, <clears throat> even when we succeed, Augustine would reflect on his move to, and the book goes through his life, right? He grows up and he, and, and he, um, he's, he's on this progression from uh, uh, this backwater town in, in, in uh, Egypt area to Carthage to uh, Rome and then finally to Milan and all of this upward mobility, upward mobility, upward mobility. And he says this, I aspired to honors, money, marriage, and he laughed at me in those ambitions. I suffered the bitterest difficulties, and that was by your mercy. And those difficulties were not that he didn't have success. He had success, and it kept failing him. It kept coming up short. It kept under-delivering on what it said it was going to deliver. You, oh, man, I, I saw so much for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then all of a sudden, you get there, and you move there, and you get that job, and you get something, and it's like, I thought it would be so much more, and yet it's not. And it's speaking to our ambition in this way, I think. So, so Augustine would caution us or, or ask us to question this, this idea of what is it that we want when we want to be seen as ambitious? What is it that we want when that we want to be noticed? What is it that we want when we want somebody to look at us and say, what's somebody like you doing in a place like this, right? 
what do we want in that way? So uh, three takeaways uh, for today. If you're taking notes, there's a note sheet inside your program. You can write these things down. Number one is this. Ambition is an ingrained experience. And here's what I mean by this. And you can believe this whether um, you, you know, you're religious or not religious. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of answer it at both angles. Um, but he would say this. I was ingrained with this, uh, this idea of ambition. Like I did not... Uh, I... I uh, this was something that was kind of forced in on me from even, he would say, my parents. His quote in his confessions, confession says this, they, being his parents, gave no consideration excuse me, to the use that I might make of the things they forced me to learn. The objective they had in view was merely to satisfy the appetite for wealth and for glory, though the appetite is insatiable. The wealth is in reality destitution of spirit and the glory is something to be ashamed of. Here's what he's saying here. Um, they didn't care what I would actually do with it. They wanted the fame and the glory that comes with whatever it is that I was uh, accomplishing, and, and they knew that uh, we don't care what you want. This is what you should do. Uh, or, uh, in other words, this is maybe how it plays out. Never mind what you want to do with your life. Here are the jobs that currently pay well, Right? But I want to be this, Dad. I I I I, I want to do something significant with my life. And Dad's response is, "I don't care what you do is with your life, as you know, you know, parentheses as long as it pays decent." And then they say, "Well, I think I'd like to work in the nonprofit sector." And then the dad says, um, "I don't think you heard what I said. Um, were you not listening to a word that I said? I don't care what you do as long as it pays well. Like this, I'm. I I, I want you to." Go and you want to be a, a, a musician? Well, say what? A musician? Don't you know they're poor, broke, and uh, you know all of this? These games that are are played in this way. We are taught. We have parents who want something for us, um, and so they ingrain us with this sense of ambition. One, because they don't want to take care of us, which makes sense. I get that. Um, but also because they want something better for their kid, right? Than what maybe they had growing up. I'm reading this uh, book right now called Hillbilly Elegy. Um, it's, uh, it was in, back in 2016, it was trying to make sense of kind of uh, uh, backwater, basically hillbilly life, um, and why that factored so much into the uh, uh, 2016 election, and what do we not understand about these people. And it, it comes as an, like a memoir of a guy who grew up in backwater, uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, kind of moved his family or his his family moved to Ohio to kind of make to make it better for themselves right um, and uh, it, it's a very very interesting book I, I love it it has this common immigrant mentality which is we are going to do whatever it takes to give our kids a better shot at the future than what we had growing up and so his grandma he calls him her mama um, he, he ends up living with her because his mom's got a drug issue and doesn't know who his dad is um, she buys him one of those uh, graphing calculators remember the ti-89s that you had it was the most expensive calculator that you never used um, she buys him one of these and he, he realizes at that age she can barely afford groceries <laughs> most of the time she never buys anything for herself she wears the same set of overalls every day, and she bought me a $100 graphing calculator. And he's like, in that moment, I realized she wants something for me. She wants, she's pushing this ambition on me, even if I don't particularly want it. It's not even my choice. I'm being shaped uh, in this way. And he realizes in that moment, too, it's a bit complicated because ambition is a two-edged sword. He begins to feel a little bit homeless. He eventually graduates high school and gets accepted into, to, uh, or goes into the Marines, um, goes to Ohio State University, and then gets accepted into Yale Law School. And he finds himself in this world like, I'm from Backwater, Kentucky, and I'm at Yale. I'm, I, I belong nowhere now. I go here, and everybody else... Um, 
It comes, you know, what, what are they doing for Thanksgiving? They're going to their, their parents' yacht. You know, they're going to their, their third home on, on, on some island somewhere. Uh, and where am I going? I'm going to uh, Middletown, Ohio, uh, which is, is absolutely nowhere. And so, and, but the problem is then he says, I go home to Middletown, Ohio, and I'm, I see somebody at the gas station who's wearing a Yale sweatshirt. And I go up to her and I say, did you, he's, he's, you know, currently going to school there. And he goes up and he goes, did you go to Yale? And she's like, no, I bought this at a thrift store. And he feels like, oh yeah, I don't know. What, I, what was I thinking with where I'm at, right? And she goes, what, did you? And he goes, no, but my girlfriend. He's making up stories because he doesn't want to be identified as being too ambitious, right? It's ingrained on us. We're, we're, we're taught to do this. But even his grandma's saying, but don't you get up, uppity uppity, right? Don't you, don't you get too big for your britches, don't get to the spot where, because we know that there's a dark side of ambition too, and we're so afraid of this idea of, of ego and, and pressure and, and all this kind of interesting stuff that comes along with it. And Augustine recognizes, listen, I was ingrained with that as a, 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 from my parents, and he lived this ambitious life, and he's realizing this is a struggle for me and a constant issue with why I'm restless, and then he flips it around to take it a step further that you may or may not, depending on kind of where you come, you know, your background in religion, but he turns the finger back at God, and not that finger, the other one, just the pointer finger, and says, you, you gave this to me. You made me this way. If we are, if we are ambitious in, in, in kind of our character and our persona, yes, there is a degree in which it was kind of like this nurture thing that came from our parents, but he would argue that there's also like this nature piece of it where it's like, I think you gave us this, this something inside of us to create. You were creator. You invited us into the process of creation. Therefore, I had this ability to be ambitious. And so if it's all bad, then why did you give me this desire to do something, to be noticed? Again, this is going to come back in a huge way because um, so many of these things um, are not necessarily bad in and of them. In fact, none of them are bad in and of themselves. The goal is to not take you off the road and be like, let's not be ambitious together, okay? Everybody will just live comfortably or whatever. Um, it's to be ambitious, but to do it in a different way, to see that there's a dark side, a shadow side to this. And he goes, I can't think that this is necessarily all bad because you, to some degree, built me this way. You made me this way. The goal isn't to take us off the road. It's to understand ambition as a spiritual craving and understand the implications of it being a God-given thing in our life. James K.A. Smith uh, wrote about uh, this kind of idea, saying this, the question isn't whether we aim our lives. Our existence is like an arrow on a taut string. It will be sent somewhere. We will do something. We will be ambitious in some way. We will have all of It's already here. It's just a matter of where is it going? Where is it going? Number two, uh, our, our kind of takeaway, and this is, we're going to dive into it. This is going to be the longest one, and the three is going to be fast, but um, we'll dive into a scripture on this one. The opposite of ambition isn't humility. Because oftentimes we think of, well, I can either be like, um, uh, I, I can be ambitious, or I can choose to kind of be humble and, and kind of stay, take a step back in this. And we know that that. that, that Humility preaches well. It's a very um, unique thing when it comes to Christianity, this pathway towards humility. God gave himself up for us. He, one, he made himself in the, the person of Jesus, who then gave himself up on a cross, subjected himself to all kinds of shame and pain and all this stuff. And so you choose, you lay down your life for others, you choose humility. And so oftentimes we think that humility and ambition are at odds with one another. And I don't think that that's the case. And we're going to walk through a text that's going to show this uh, as well. 
The opposite of ambition isn't humility. It's sloth, passivity, timidity, and complacency. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10. I remember um, as probably a high school student uh, hearing this verse and in, in used in a way to combat ambition, right? Uh, and I don't know if it was like one of those books that your grandma buys you, you're about to go to college, and it's like, hey, you're going to need this. And um, uh, have all kinds of, like, oh, the places you'll go, but the Christian version of it, right? And so this is... Uh, this is probably something from, from here. Like, it's okay to live like a simple life and a quiet life. It's okay. Here, here's the text. Yet we urge you, this is Paul writing a church in Thessalonica um, in, in the middle. If you read, if you read this, this verse in isolation, listen to what this says, because this is how I remember hearing this. And maybe, maybe you attended a church once or a pastor like me said this to you and just comforted you in your complacency. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, right? Which is almost like, be okay with where you're at. Be fine, what do you got? 3.5 APR financing on a 30-year loan at the house? That's pretty good, settle for that. Don't be ambitious in that way. What are you putting away? How, how much in retirement each week? I mean, it's nothing, you're not like super rich, but you're gonna be comfortable, you'll be fine. Don't be ambitious, don't try too hard. Just choose humility over ambition in this way, it's against pride. It feels like it's against ego. And we've been taught or, you know, we would read this verse in this context and think ambition is the opposite of humility. It's the Christian equivalent of I could have gone pro if it wasn't for this darn knee, right? <laughs> it could have been something, but I chose humility because that's the pathway to following Jesus, which leads us to the question, is ambition compatible with following Jesus? If we're going to say, well, this is ingrained, you know, ambition was ingrained on us from our parents, but it was also like something more, like I feel like God kind of gave me some of this. Is it then compatible? How, my, my, my struggle with that is, is this compatible, compatible with following Jesus? Because apparently here it feels like Paul is saying, um, make it your goal to live as quiet of life as possible in this way. A couple of things you need to know about Thessalonica. I put together, I found a little map online. It's, it's super ghetto. Sorry about that. Um, this is Greece. It's up in the corner at the, at the very top, Thessalonica. It's a port city. Very, very wealthy. And the reason it's wealthy is because if you wanted to kind of tr make trade up into areas like Macedonia, which is right at the top of the screen there, um, then you would want to go as far as you can with a boat, right, to cover like transportation costs and then, and then take it the rest of the way. So anyways, it's a very wealthy city. The bottom line is um, a port city, um, lots of jobs, lots of money. It sided with Emperor Augustus, when he was in the Civil War with Mark Antony, a little Roman history, like it was like a you choose, get, you get to choose one side and there's a lot of questions. It was about a 50-50 deal and you wanted to pick the right side because after the war then, if you picked the right side, you'd get certain blessings and they picked Augustus and he ended up winning uh, the Roman Civil War in that way. And uh, so they were granted the right of a free city, which basically means less taxes and less Roman oversight than, than some of the other cities. So they have a lot of things going for them. Uh, in this way. Paul, Paul and his friends show up at the synagogue, Jewish synagogue, um, talking about Jesus on one of his missionary journeys. And it's a bit unclear how long they're there, but it doesn't end well. They're smuggled out of the city under the dead of night. You can read about this in the book of Acts. And afterwards, um, he writes a letter addressing concerns that he'd heard from Timothy. They're out. They don't feel like it's safe for them to go back into this town. So he sends his protege, Timothy, in there to check on this young fledgling church in this really wealthy, kind of well-to-do city. How's it going over there? Timothy has some concerns. One of the biggest concerns 
uh, is a refusal to work from people who are able to do so, but instead are living off the generosity of others. You see Paul and his friends come into town preaching this new Jesus thing. Jesus uh, is the Messiah. He's the Logos made, and you know, God made himself known through this person of Jesus. He died on a cross. People, we saw him rise again. He had taught these certain things. We need to then trust in Jesus. And by the way, this is his, their closing comments. He's coming back, right? This was a big thing in Jewish Christianity. Um, he's on his way back. He, he said he's leaving, but he's preparing a place for us. And, and uh, it, might be, it might be next week. We, we don't really know. I mean, most of the new Jewish Christian converts lived in anticipation of a return of Christ within their lifetime. That, that was a shaping element of early Christianity that we kind of miss. I mean, we, we uh, you know, you probably have grown up with uh, uh, a church or churches who focus on that weekly, and it was, it was first of all, you know, it used to be in Y2K, it was going to all happen, the computer's going to crash, and then Jesus was going to come save us. Uh, and then it was uh, 2017, it was all the numbers, and all of the different, like, since the 80s, this has been a Jesus coming, Jesus coming. And I think that we've been so inundated with it now, we're just like, maybe, at least this is where I'm at. I don't know, doesn't matter. I'm not going to, like, not plan for retirement because of that, right? Does that make sense? Uh, and for them, it was so real and so imminent, it was a matter of why would we work? Um, Jesus is coming back any day. And then what they discovered is that some of the uh, less endowed financially people were relying on those with lots of money to provide for them. And the message was, your money's not going to matter in two weeks anyways, so let's just, we don't need to work. You just spend it, spend it, and then also spend it on me. You know what I mean? And, and some of this is going on, and it's freeloading, but it's freeloading because they were genuinely convinced their time was short on this planet or what was left in their life. So it's not just like they were just general freeloaders. It was just they're not working, and Paul's seeing this. The entire book, by the way, of, of 1 Thessalonians is written about this, addressing this issue, questions about the return of Christ, and then also, what are you doing with this? You know, why, why are you living? Why are you, this is embarrassing. This is not what we taught, basically. This is not how we do things in this way. Now, it's interesting. Uh, here's, here's I'm going to read um, a bigger section of that verse 10 and 11, which I just showed you, with Kind of that as a context, let's read through these verses again and see how this reads a little bit differently when it comes to, is Paul really preaching an anti-ambition statement or is there something different in this way? Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, right? We know this. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. He's being so nice here. This is what's known as a capatio benevolentia, which is basically in our terms, uh, this, is be, this is the you know, Greek term of it, but in our terms, it's one of those good news, good news, good news, bad news, good news. Let me, let me, let me soften you up. Say, you have to say three really nice things before you critique them. That's what's happening here. Paul has been spending three chapters leading up into this, like being like, you guys are awesome. You guys are doing so great. You love everybody. I didn't have to teach you love. I'm not here to talk about you need to love more, all right? Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. 
And to make it your ambition, going back to this verse, and to make it your ambition to lead, lead a quiet life. Listen, we're not challenging the fact that you love that you need to love more people in this way. We're challenging you to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Quiet in this case has to do with some of them not being uh, disruptive regarding the lives of other people. Uh, we want you to be quiet in the, in the, in the sense of not, disrupt, not uh, requiring other people to take care of your business. Do your own thing, which is made clear because of the two elaborations that follow exactly after this verse. Listen to what uh, the next verse says. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, because right now you're losing respect, because it feels like a freeload of religion, and we don't like that perception of it, so that you may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Live a quiet life, not anti-ambition. It's actually the exact opposite of that. We need you to be more ambitious with your life. We need you to do something. Instead of being an admonition against being ambitious, he's actually encouraging people to be more ambitious in this way. So even the text that kind of leads us to be this quiet life. And by the way, it would be so awkward for Paul to be like, hey, please just lead a quiet life. When Paul's the one going on three different missionary journeys, planting churches everywhere, living, like, living this lifestyle of, of all kinds of like crazy, ambitious, big, giant goals. And when he goes into a town, he's like, you don't need to sponsor me. I'm not, raising, I'm not passing a plate. I'm, I'm gonna work as a tent maker. I'm gonna use my vocation. Don't pay me anything. I'm doing this out of, out of a calling that I'm making. It would be so weird for Paul to go against everything he ever taught me. Like, but you, you should be ambitious. Or, or not ambitious, right? Me, I'll be like the crazy ambitious dude. People are gonna ask me, when do you ever sleep, Paul? And I'll be like, what's a person like you doing in a place like this? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you live quietly. Let people not even know that you're here, right? He's like, no, that's not what I mean. You know what I mean. There have been a few people freeloading on you. You need to be ambitious with what, if you're able to work, you need to be able to take, make this thing happen, all right? So now I think, here's what we've done so far. Number one, we've said that I feel like Ambition is kind of uh, inherited or ingrained in us both by our human parents and also by God. Number two, it's not anti. In fact, it's preached in Scripture to be ambitious this way. And then number three, it is the end goal or the telos of ambition that distinguishes good from bad. It is the end goal. It is, what is this, where is this thing headed? If James K. Smith is, is right and it's like the string is pulled back and it's just a matter of where it's going, where, what, what part of our ambition, how do we know if our ambition is good or bad? Well, what's the end goal of it? What are we trying to get to? What is the end goal of ambition? The alternative to disorder of ambition that ultimately disappoints is not some holy lethargy or pious passivity. It's recalibrated ambition that aspires for a different end and does so for different reasons. What is it you're trying to be ambitious for and about? Why are you trying to be noticed? What are you trying to win and dominate and have people see you see win and dominate? Andre Agassi wrote uh, in his memoir, um, it came out several years ago, but it was a book called Open. At the end of the book, he describes a scenario where he's kind of towards the end of his career. And he's just fighting through. He's battling through injuries. And, you know, in tennis, tennis is a sport, um, well, Roger Federer would say it the other way, but that you get older and it, the, it falls off fast for you, right? It just, the drop-off is significant. And so he's nearing the precipice of being irrelevant and, Probably never going to win again. So he says this, I'm hobbling through the lobby of the Four Seasons the next morning after this match that he just played. When a man steps out of the shadows, he grabs my arm and he says, quit. And I say, what? 
And it's my father, a ghost of my father. He looks ashen. He looks as if he hasn't slept in weeks. And I said, Pops, what are you talking about? And his dad looks him in the eye and says, just quit. Go home. You did it. It's over. You did it. That's it. Like, that's enough. And it seems like in this way, our culture of ambition has only two speeds, win at all costs or quit. Win at all costs or quit. Do it or just don't do it at all. Don't even attempt it at all. And it, and it is as if it's not a surprise to us of playing and doing something for the attention of a father figure or a mother figure or to hear my dad say, finally, I'm proud of you or good job, son, right? You see these, these athletes accomplish these major feats and after their dad has passed away and Tiger's crying on the green after he wins, I don't even remember which one he won, but it's like all of a sudden, the, the, the person whose um, attention, I just wanted to be noticed. I just wanted to be, I just wanted to be t- told, well done, by somebody who isn't trying to get something out of me, but like their authority I value. And, and this, is, this is what Augustine would say, like I've lived my life giving that authority to so many different things, trying to be noticed by people and saying that their opinion on what I've done matters. And ultimately the end goal, the telos has been all messed up. The end goal is not that. The end goal should have been directed. Do I care what God says about me? Is that, can that be enough for me? Perhaps our ambition to win is a hunger to be noticed, maybe even a lifelong unarticulated hunger to be noticed by a father to hear him say, well done, you did it. But instead of it being an earthly father or you know, substitute that category for somebody that we just, whose opinion we respect, what if it was instead directed towards, as he would say, you, oh, Heavenly Father, it's always been about you, and I just didn't even realize it. I've done it for so many other people for my entire life, and I keep coming up short, and I keep feeling restless, and it keeps under-delivering, but perhaps, it's, it's, perhaps that's on me. You've given me this thing. I know that it's good, but I've misdirected it so many times in my life. And that's why I have these questions, these naggy questions in my back, in, 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 my, in the back of my mind, like, what am I doing wrong with this? But it's been you all the time. And the answer, the, the thought when it comes to that is, um, he doesn't love you because, this is Augustine talking to he doesn't, you don't love me because of what I've been able to do. You're not even impressed. I want to be noticed by you, but you're not impressed by the things that I do. I don't even have to win, but I don't have to quit either. I only have to quit imagining that love is earned. I only have to quit acting as if I'm always performing for you. I can rest, but I know that I don't have to quit. I just need to change the way that I play. God, let my heart, my restlessness is something you gave in me. Let me go back to that original quote at the very, very beginning. In yourself, you rouse us, giving us delight and glorifying you because you made us with yourself as our goal. You made us with yourself as our goal. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. May we be the type of people who, in the spirit of our ambition, would not be like, well, you know, following Jesus requires to be anti-ambitious. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I think God gave you that. Um, I think that there's scripture backing the idea of being ambitious. It's about what, who am I trying to be noticed by? And am I comfortable with the fact that nothing that I do can make God love me any more or any less, both on the positive or the negative? That that's secured. And when that is secured, may then we be the type of people who pursue ambition out of a response 
to the already confirmed love and acceptance of a heavenly father in our life. I think that would shape how we proceed with ambition. So what is it that we want when we want to be noticed? What is it that we want? We want to have ambition and attention and approval that according to scripture and according to Augustine is already there if we'll accept it. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is uh, that you would solidify this. As much as we can talk about this and, and, and be like, yeah, that makes sense or whatever, or, or I still have questions or something, but um, actually doing this and actually living with uh, a, a sense that you do love us and that uh, that is unquestionable and, and that isn't uh, increased by our good behavior or decreased by our bad behavior, um, I, I pray that you would uh, allow that to sink. I pray that we would be ambitious, that we would be the type of people who, because of the grace been given to us, we do amazing things with the gifts and the talents and the abilities that you've blessed us with. But we, may we never rely on those. May we never look at that and be like, this is why I'm worthy. This is why I'm worth something. Uh, may it instead go so much deeper than that. May, may that be just a, uh, a, another chance for uh, when those successes come in life to point to a heavenly father who uh, gets the glory even in our um, circumstances, our, our, the good things that happen to us. So give us the wisdom to know what it looks like in our life, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.